Hey fellow superhero cinephiles, did you know that almost 30% of adults say they haven't read a book in the past year? The primary reason why is a lack of time. Well, Audible's here to help with the gift of found time. Thanks to Audible, you can listen to audiobooks like Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, or Slugfest, inside the epic 50-year battle between Marvel and DC. Read up on the history of superheroes in comics and movies with Grant Morrison's Super Gods. You can also check out Vanguard, my original superhero novel series, or try The Vril Agenda or The Adventures of Fortune McCall, both of which were written by our dearly departed host emeritus, Derek Ferguson. Whatever you're looking for, Audible has thousands of titles that you can consume while commuting, exercising, cooking, or just relaxing at home. And not only audiobooks, an Audible membership also gives you access to tons of content like podcasts, theatrical performances, and exclusive Audible originals that you won't find anywhere else. To give you a taste of what you can get, Audible has partnered with this show to provide listeners with a free 30-day trial. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com slash supercinemapod, and with your free trial, you get one free audiobook and two free Audible originals. In fact, you get to keep those titles even if you cancel before the trial is over. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to audibletrial.com slash supercinemapod and start your free trial today. Cuba, Russia, America, makes no difference. Shaw's declared war on mankind, on all of us. He has to be stopped. I'm not going to stop Shaw. I'm going to kill him. Do you have it in you to allow that? You've known all along why I was here, Charles. But things have changed. What started as a covert mission, tomorrow mankind will know that mutants exist. Sure, us, they won't differentiate. They'll fear us. And that fear will turn to hatred. Not if we stop a war. Not if we can prevent Sure, Not if we risk our lives doing so. Would they do the same for us? We have it in us to be the better men. We already are. We're the next stage of human evolution. You said it yourself. No, no. Are you really so naive as to think that they won't battle their own extinction? Or is it arrogance? I'm sorry? After tomorrow, they're going to turn on us. Or you're blind, Ted, because you believe they're all like Moira. And you believe they're all like Shaw. Listen to me very carefully, my friend. Killing Shaw will not bring you peace. Peace was never an option. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine. And a few months ago, I had discovered this show through Instagram and Twitter called The Ex-Wife Podcast. And I, I'm going to let them tell you a little bit more about the show. But um, I, I really enjoyed listening to it and listening to them talk back and forth. And I've been jumping around um, a bunch of the different episodes and uh, and I thought you know I should try I should email these guys and see if they'd want to come on to this show and so now I'm happy to welcome to the show Justin and Alicia from the ex-wife podcast guys how are you doing today great how are you doing, doing well doing well. yeah same here doing good uh, so before we get started about the movie why don't you guys talk a little bit about yourselves and about your podcast sure yeah so the Ex-Wife Podcast is one man's elaborate scheme to get his wife into X-Men comics that's working slash has already worked. We're 
It's uh, a podcast that needs a new tagline. Basically, <laughs> we've been we've been at it for just over a year now, and I think it was maybe two or three months in that I, I saw the plan in action. It was already taking root, and she is now officially reading comics weekly. And uh, there are no really no new X books this week, so it's kind of like a whoa. What do we do? What do we read? And that's a good fear for her to express uh, that, that she's missing out on the comics that would normally happen on Wednesday. Yeah. So we started with House of X and Powers of Ten. And uh, the podcast originally started with this idea of Justin sort of recapping an issue to me. And I would just react as a person who really didn't know much about the X-Men outside of films. And um, then we did all sorts of things like retcon wranglers where justin tells me about different retcon things or like my we called it my ex education so basically ex ed ex ed (laughs) basically going through um the the comics history related to the x-men the seminal moments big points kind of filling my brain with all of this knowledge on top of reading or going through current comics and um just digging in and me getting attached to certain characters and starting to hate other characters. And um, now we're just, we're just X-Men crazy. So yeah. here we are. Yeah. She had, she had never read any comics before. Nope. And then house of X powers of 10 were her first comics. And about halfway through recording, I had gotten her the hardcover and she started reading it and reading along and reading the issues that she had already read. And I was like, all right, yes. But, <laughs> layers to this plan so the x ed so when if you haven't read hawksbox if you haven't or if your listeners haven't it was a 2019 kind of soft relaunch of the x-men franchise that marvel was marketing as a seminal moment in x-men history and they categorized that with a couple others that they pulled out as these big turning moments in comics publication history so for our second season of the podcast i was like all right let's let's dive into those other noteworthy moments mixed with a handful of the claremont run because they kind of sidestepped the claremont run by going giant size x-men to x-men number one from 1991 like hey wait a minute there's there's about 16 years of party (laughs) stories that build all these characters that we know and love that we should probably dive into to build the foundation for the current issues and now Happy to say, as of a couple of weeks ago, she has read everything that has come out within the Krakoan era of the last two years or so. Oh, nice. You're even more up on my, on me then, because I only go through, uh, I do trades now, so oh. so I'm not doing week to week. So uh, and then when I'm listening to your show, that's why I've, I really like the, the seminal moments and the Retcon Wrangler episodes, because, oh, I have those books, so I can actually listen to those mm-hmm. episodes now without being spoiled. Um, yeah, so those, those are those are definitely my favorite ones when you guys go into that kind of stuff. Um, and then as I read the new stuff, then I go back to your feed and listen to those old other episodes. Yeah. I, I personally really like the trades too because I I I get like flack for saying this, but I was like a real book person, a novel person. I won't call them real and fake books because they're all real books. It's just a joke, everybody. Um, but I like being able to like sit down and read the story, like a good chunk of it at a time versus, you know, one issue. I'm like, okay, I need some more. I need something else. That wasn't enough. That's like reading one chapter. Why? Which honestly, when I was a kid going to the shop, there were titles that I would just let build up as a backlog and then burn through a full arc in an afternoon, kind of similar. So 
and and a question for you, Perry, are you reading the title trades or are you reading the the Dawn of X, Reign of oh, X yeah, trades because different organizations that they've done with this era? Yeah, I had started re- I had started jumping into the title trades before I noticed the Dawn of X and Reign of X trades. So when I saw those big collections, I'm like, man, I should have gotten those instead. So, but now I'm stuck with the title trades. <laughs> I think there's a good, and you get more freedom to hop around with that yeah. too, and really follow up on something that you specifically are into. Yeah, that that's been um, that's been good too. There have been some of the books that I haven't been that haven't appealed to me as much, and so those ones I'm just like, eh, I'm not in a rush. Like I read the first New Mutants trade, and it wasn't really wasn't really my thing, and so I I haven't really felt a need to pick up any of the ones after that. It gets better. It gets better after Ten of Swords. Okay. I just uh, recently read Ten of Swords, and I think the, the the was it the giant size X Men. I think that was the most recent one I've read. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, Justin, what was your history getting into comics then? Sure. Yeah. So my godfather, my uncle, he collected as a kid, and has the the tragic backstory of his mom throwing out a bunch of his comics, oh. selling them at a lot, yard sale. Yes. Yeah, so. He, he rebuilt some of his collection and then got back in around when I was born and, and really early on, you know, he was reading kind of the stuff that was coming out in the, the mid to late 80s, the early 90s. And he would take me to the Toys R Us that would sell these combo packs of just random issues and uh, just different publishers, different titles, all smattering of everywhere. And then he was actually the one that would get me the the essential books the black and white essential books that I actually still have back from the early 90s the same issues that I, I read through mm-hmm. a ton of times so it was kind of a hodgepodge of a handful of random issues here and then the essential books and then obviously the the 90s cartoon was was kind of foundational for knowing the characters and knowing the backstories but my first pretty sure my first issue actually just got it fi- uh, signed by Fabian Nicieza uh, was the X-Men issue from uh, the the crossover where Magneto rips the adamantium from Wolverine. Oh, Fatal Attractions. Fatal Attractions, yeah. And so that that was the first one that I really remember. And just, just seeing that, I'm getting the chills just thinking oh, about it. Like just, just seeing it rip from his body and, and kind of knowing who Wolverine was at the time because I had seen the, the cartoon at the time. Uh, and and used to collect the trading cards and so kind of piecemeal bringing together a, a awareness and knowledge of the characters and their stories but not really having a consistent arc until I got those essential books and then dove into the Claremont run yeah I had, uh, I had kind of a similar thing I think my first issue was was also an ECAs I think it was the one right before it was it was uh, when Rogan Gabbett go on on a date and it was like this prelude to Fatal Attractions, which was really confusing because they're talking about Magneto being dead and someone named Ileana has just died. And I just came in through the cartoons and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on, but <laughs> but I'm going to keep reading it anyway. And that I feel like is so many people's That's experience with X-Men, <laughs> yeah, right? Because yeah. there isn't, there isn't always a, a knowledgeable and kindly husband mm-hmm. next to you to be able to explain to you issue by issue. And no, we'll now read this. And, yeah. you know, Redditors get upset when you ask, what should I read first? Or how do I get into the X-Men? And and a lot of people just 
start reading. They find whatever they can in, in dollar bins or, or trades and pick those up. And then, okay, Wikipedia now mm-hmm. adds the ability to place it in history. And even some of that, you can go crazy trying to piece it together and it doesn't yeah. always yeah. make sense. And uh, Alicia, um, so you came in through the films originally then. Uh, so what what were your first, and that, that's really fitting for this podcast. This is all about superhero movies. Uh, so what were some of your first superhero movies? Oh, man. Um, well, my dad was really into like action movies. So anything that had action in it, my dad was into. And so I watched, um, I think like the Batman movies were probably the first superhero movies that I saw. And then the X-Men movies and some of the MCU. And then I started getting like really into the MCU. And then I think that was probably around the time that I met Justin and then, you know, more into it. I think I didn't really have a person in my life growing up that, was really into superheroes or anything of that nature. So I, I began my nerdiness with like Harry Potter and um, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park, and then sort of the Batman movies was were my dad's thing, and I was into that. But then once I realized that there was Marvel, um, <laughs> I was like, okay, DC, you're cool, but Marvel. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I, I saw the first three X-Men movies, but it wasn't until the second sort of second wave or second round of them that I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, X-Men movies. Um, yeah. And and so I was super an MCU strictly. That was my fandom until I started, we started this podcast and I started to get into like the comic world and saw a whole new like there's so much more yeah. you just don't know <laughs> yeah it honestly it upsets her to no end about storm and, i can't and storm's treatment in the movies versus <laughs> her, her amazingness during the comics runs and- i'll never forget like first reading the comics and, and and or talking with justin about the comics and being like hold up why is storm so poorly represented in the movies like uh-huh. she is a powerhouse she is such Leader. a huge role and she's just like what's up i'm here i'm storm let him do some lightning okay bye yeah these movies seem to have have a bit of a black problem in general and we'll talk about that in this movie as well um but yeah i even me not even being a big storm fan i'm just like come on guys i mean and especially because they because angela bassett wanted to play storm in the original movie and they said no we're gonna go with halle berry hmm. Uh, I got yeah. that name. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so now you—I'm not sure how many how many of the comics you've now read, though. But do you have you gravitated towards like a favorite era uh, of the comics yet? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't really have a favorite era. Mm-hmm. I have favorite characters. And I have eras that I'm interested in. Like the Claremont run, I really like um, because there's a lot of stories in that that I feel like I really enjoy, like uh, Days of Future Past and um, Oh My Goodness. God Loves Man Kills. That's the one. Oh, yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, But I also am like super interested. We we started a little bit talking about the Age of Apocalypse and I really want to read like all of that. 
but I always refer to the Krakoan era as my X-Men because oh. they were like my gateway into X-Men. Yeah. And I'm a really big fan of Emma Frost. So I'm super into where she's at in the comics right now. And Kate, formerly known as Kitty. So I guess I would have to say like my favorite era is the current era because it's oh. the one that I know the most about. Um, but were you going to say something else? Do uh, have I said something different in the past? No, no I was going to say that your favorite is is likely the current just because of that connection to the books as you're reading them. The, not to spoil anything, but the, the newer X-Men team that has announced that like you have called that your, yes, your X-Men team, X-Men. right? Yes. Like I have my X-Men team that is kind of around the brood saga. Like those are the, the people that when I think of the X-Men team, like those, uh-huh. that's my favorite team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting though, because like every time I say my X-Men, I did say that about the X-Men team, but I think I really mean the Marauders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Justin, so with your, your like era, that'd be more the Claremont stuff then, because you said the Brew team is like your team? Yeah, I mean, when I got into it, there, there have been stages of me diving into the comics. There was the 90s that were kind of loose brushes that Mm -hmm. gave me a little bit more of the context from the the cartoon. There was the heavy dive through the Claremont era. And that really informed a lot of what I gravitate towards in terms of character and and storytelling devices, but also just the enjoyment of the long narrative. Uh, Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, I actually maybe right before we started the podcast, I finished reading the entirety of Claremont's run, including all the spinoffs and tie-ins so X-Factor, New Mutants, going into X-Force, all the minis, all the, the big events. I also was collecting and reading at the time of New X-Men, and I do really enjoy Grant Morrison's run uh-huh. on New X-Men. And uh, I mean, it gets a bad rap now, but I was into Ultimate X-Men at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, I feel like that gave a little bit more of an approachable new take uh even though didn't age well and yeah didn't even yeah. didn't even finish out very well and kind of uh the art was cool <laughs> yeah i had recently reread the ultimate x-men stuff and i because i think we're probably about similar ages and we're reading at similar times and i loved it when it came out because i was like you know high school college and that was like the cool edgy thing and then looking back at it now it's like oh yeah this is what a 12 year old thought was cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> And and I loved Ultimate Spider-Man at the same time, so I, I was all in, and I, mm. that that kind of built the first I don't want to say addiction, but the first regularity of going to a comic shop every Wednesday and riding my bike down to the comic shop and and really collecting with fervor, uh, and and then kind of kind of phasing out and then coming back again a few years ago through Marvel Unlimited and through just trades and then just. And then everything now, now everything. There's even a hint of X-Men in an issue of something. Justin's like, oh, I picked up this one too. Yeah. yeah. Because they walked by an X-Men. Yeah. So I have to. Well, no, there's been, there's been some that I haven't. There's been like a couple of issues that, you know, Wolverine shows up in because he shows up in everything. everything. But I did, I, I, I just, I like to pick up random short runs and just read through them. Uh, it was around when, and it's not very short, but it was around when I introduced you to the Age of Apocalypse, mm-hmm. the X-Men Alpha, the first issue. I just then read the entire event again 
and now have bought the omnibus and I was like, okay, now I can dive in fully. Uh, and then there's been like a handful of just short, like 20 or so issue runs that I'm just like, yeah, I can read this in a weekend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Morrison thing. I, I, I'm, that's probably the era I gravitate towards the most myself. Um, although I, I've always got a soft spot for the nineties because that's when I started. Um, but in fact, one of my, I'm doing another podcast for me and a few other guys from the house of X Facebook group. We're doing, um, uh, a read through all the, all the Morrison stuff. And we, uh, awesome. we had just finished, uh, the Imperial arc and now we're starting into the, the new world stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, uh but I, oh, sorry, go ahead. That was one of the, the seminal moments. I think that was the last one on the list before, house of x and powers of 10 so the mm -hmm. the e is for extinction yeah 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 uh so uh we're talking about today's movie now um x-men first class uh 2011 and my my feelings on the x-men movies i've kind of got like a love-hate relationship with these movies uh because i don't mind all of the changes i'm not one of those x-men fans who is like oh they don't have jeans hair the right shade of red or anything like that but but there are other some there are other changes they made that i'm just like really why, why did you have to go that wow. route yeah um and this movie i think is this weird example because it's both very fitting for an x-men movie and also one of those why did you do that because they don't seem to know if this was supposed to be, if it was supposed to be a reboot, if it was supposed to be a prequel, or if it was supposed to be some sort of weird mix between the two. Right. And, and I mean, to, to start it with Magneto and Poland it, in essentially the same shots that we've seen in another movie, it feels like, oh, okay, they're doing a prequel. But then you throw in Mystique and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so it, it does, it feels like it, it's a, a blend of yeah it's a prequel but also we're gonna do whatever we want because okay. nobody tell me nothing so now that i'm like super cool and knowledgeable uh when we were watching this i was like because we we've seen it a handful of times many times but we of course watched it again so that it was fresh okay. and now that i have all this other knowledge i was realizing like there are all these sort of connections to the times in which they reboot, quote unquote, reboot the X-Men in that, like the whole story of the Leningrad and like what's we're going to make Magneto the bad guy. How does Magneto become the bad guy? Like they play back and forth between Magneto and Shaw in that same role and this idea of like, where's nuclear war coming from and why do we need to get together as as a team to defeat them? And there's even like actual raising of submarines out of the water mm -hmm. and so i thought that was like a cool connection to exactly what you're saying that's like is it a reboot or is it is it a prequel like are we telling you something that's already happened or are we saying like we're starting fresh and i felt like that was similar to a couple of issues that we've talked about of like it's the x-men we're kind of starting over but we're also just telling you a new point in time mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's very much, I think, a hybrid of both of those things or like a, if this is an experience, you take what you want from it. Yeah. If you want to yeah. leave feeling like that was a prequel, good for you. If you want to leave feeling like this is a fresh new start, we'll give you that too. <laughs> Whatever you do, just give us some money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I. It's funny you mentioned the Leningrad thing. I had never picked up on that. And that's like one of my most <laughs> my favorite Magneto moments. I honestly felt so excited when I when I started realizing that watching it because I 
was like, whoa, this is something that I know. And I think also because I've gotten so much comic knowledge in such a condensed period of time, like it all lives very fresh in my brain where you might not normally have made that connection because how long ago was it that you read that issue? And we had just, we had just done the trial of Magneto and we had talked about it. We actually had house of X, uh, Dylan and Regina guest on our show talking about uncanny X-Men 200 by Claremont and made those connections between 150 where he sinks the Leningrad and X-Men number one, 1991, where he raises it. And these different points in Claremont's run where he tells the arc of Magneto uh-huh. and, and this being an origin story for Magneto totally. really works to use that as a, a connection point, as a, as an anchor. Yeah. That, that origin story for Magneto is a, is a good point I wanted to touch on because this movie actually first started off as X-Men Origins Magneto. That's what the original plan for this was. Um, what? Yeah, they were going to do, because um, their, their plan was they are going to do a series of these X-Men Origins movies. They started off with Wolverine and then that mm-hmm. one tanked. And so after that, they're just like, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. So that, then they kind of, then they kind of merged the what they had the script they already had for Magneto and they kind of merged it with first class and kind of wrote around it and I think that really sticks out in a lot of points because I feel like the Magneto stuff is definitely the strongest in this movie yeah I think I I one of the things I put in my notes was like is this just a Magneto origin story which now oh hello yes it is thank you for sharing that information with me But I think that's why I always say of all the X-Men movies that this is my favorite one. And I think that's why, because I love seeing like Magneto become Magneto and realize his power and realize, you know, his purpose, so to speak. And just seeing that part of Magneto and Charles's relationship that me, I personally haven't seen before. Um, I know that it's brought up a little bit in the comics, like how they become who they are, but you don't, I don't think you often see them as young. Yeah. And so that part of it is what really draws me into it of seeing like the different perspective of them becoming who they are. And also this idea of, you don't know if you're the only mutant or that there are other, other mutants, like all the other stories that I had known up until this point where there are mutants, they're everywhere. We know they exist. We just don't like them. Uh Justin, what are some of your thoughts of this movie in general um, coming at it from someone who's, who's got all this knowledge about the comics. Yeah. I, I give all X-Men movies a very generous read in the sense that I'm just excited to see the X-Men on film. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know that that taints my vision with Ruby quartz in the sense that I'm just excited. Hey, these are my favorite guys and they're in a movie. And if I need to call it an alternate universe, I'll do that to let things slide. Uh-huh. There might even be multiple alternate universes in the Fox universe, and that's fine. And I, I'd say the the part where it becomes discongruous is where it feels like this is an origin story for Magneto. This is very much so connected to the, the first couple of movies. And then you introduce Mystique in this role that is in no way connected to where else you've seen her there's no acknowledgement between Xavier and Mystique to have this deep relationship that, you know, that I, I just, I remember being in the theater like, oh, cool. This is, this is this. Wait, what? No, mm-hmm. no, it's not. <laughs> and, and it's aged fine. I, I enjoy this movie. It's 
in probably my top half. It's definitely not my favorite of the X-Men films. Uh, my favorite, I think, is it, it goes back and forth between Days of Future Past and X2 because those are just some of my favorite stories and uh -huh. they're done really well. But in general, I, I really like this movie for what it does. I really like the origin story of not only Magneto, but the, the collegiality that he has with Xavier. And I feel like you've talked about that a lot, Alicia, the, you always had watched the original movies and then like, Oh, okay. They're, they're friends. They respect each other. They're, they're frenemies, mm -hmm. but why? But and why? and this, this really digs into that in a way that's interesting and shows you, okay, they have this respect for each other, but because of their personal histories, they can't go about it in the same way. It gives old friend more gravitas. Yes, it just, it, it roots into what it means for them personally, especially Magneto and especially just through his experience as a Holocaust survivor. My favorite parts in this movie are definitely the opening stuff when we see Magneto Nazi Hunter. Like I just, <laughs> and it made, it made me wish like every time I watch this movie, I just keep thinking the same thing. I want Matthew Vaughn and Michael Fassbender to do a James Bond movie set in the sixties. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. <clears throat> Honestly, it, it's the that scene where he's in the bar with the the blood oh and God. honor. Like that's the best scene. And that is the greatest scene in the movie. Yeah. And it has the slow build of the the music, and the score is just that sound. It's just uh -huh. the. Dun, dun, you know it just comes up and you're like oh god like I, i'm getting it just just talking about it uh -huh. yeah he's yeah. about to do some stuff and and he delivers i love I michael fassbender love as him. magneto yeah so good yeah every time i watch this movie there are moments when i just kind of like you know you know when you see a movie like you know a dozen times you kind of drift in and out and you're like checking your phone and stuff like that every time this scene that scene comes on though it's just like boom i'm right there and it's just like it's the first time i'm watching it again it's just like his delivery is just so amazing. Yeah. And it's just uh, such a calm, like, yes, my parents were murdered by pig farmers and tailors. Yeah. And you're just like, <laughs> and, <laughs> and just the slow reveal of the, the numbers on his, his forearm and their just, faces uh, of like, oh no, what's happening. And especially when he, when he takes the, the knife out and he's like, he's like, yeah. oh, blood and honor, which would you like to shed first? It's just like the yes. chilling way he delivers everything. Uh. Yeah. so good even, and even, just the gestures he makes when he's controlling the knife too it's just like it's so amazingly fluid i'm just like holy fuck there that's him controlling the knife that's just yeah 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 even even that first scene as an adult as we were watching it as he's just hanging out in a room mm -hmm. twirling the uh, the the coin that he's now carried throughout his entire life plotting the vengeance for his uh -huh. murdered family and uh, it just it just gives him so much to and it gives us as the audience so much to identify and connect with his trauma and his reasoning as for why he's the way he is yeah 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 for me he is the most realized most developed fleshed out character in this movie and um right. uh with mcavoy i his xavier grew on me over time like it was this movie i didn't like him too much it wasn't until future uh, days of future past that he really kind of sold me on him um, I don't know. I think it's just, I'm just so attached to Xavier and it's just like seeing the whole frat boy Xavier thing just feels so weird to me. <laughs> I don't know if you've gotten this from our podcast, but I hate Charles Xavier now. <laughs> I, am, I have, I am out on him. One of, one of my early goals for the podcast was to ruin Charles Xavier for Alicia. Because <laughs> Done. 
Because if you just watch the movies, if you just watch the animated TV show, you're like, wow, Xavier's such a great guy. He's Uh a hero. But if you read specific stories and you understand his deeper characteristics, you're like, wow, he is parading around as this great guy, but he actually is a terrible person sometimes. Does things for good reasons, but... I just was watching this and... I think this was maybe the second time since I've realized I despise Charles Xavier that we've watched this movie. And I was like, oh, he is nailing the arrogance of Charles Xavier. And I didn't really appreciate it as much before. And I just really felt like exactly what you're saying, like the frat boy thing and just this idea that he is my biggest reason for not liking Charles Xavier is his entitlement to do what he wants with your mind when he decides that Uh it's right. But then his idea of like, Oh no, but I'm, I'm a good guy, but like, you're not a good guy. If you just go inside people's heads and take things that they didn't say you could have. And that, and, and the taking and taking away Uh that I'm going to take this from you. And then I'm also going to give you this thing that you didn't know was there a block this from your brain forever. And I just didn't realize how well he nails that like confident arrogance that I just can't stand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so at the end of the movie, she loved to hate McAvoy's <laughs> portrayal because it was perfect. He nailed everything that she's been feeling about Xavier as a character. <laughs> that and- that that's a good point. Yeah. I I'd never considered that before. And and you're right, he's it always lasts. I always laugh in the comics when he says, "Oh, I never enter someone's mind without permission." It's like, bitch, you do that all the time. Yeah, right. All oh, the time. Only when it's necessary by the plot, and then yeah, I yeah. deny it, and then preach this moral code to all of my students. And honestly, like, it's not really fair to Charles Xavier. But now that I feel the way that I feel, I everything he does is wrong. Oh my like, god, everything. <laughs> Even to the point where, you know, we were, we're talking to each other while we're watching the movie and I'm like, Charles, you went too far. Okay. So when you're telling Magneto, like, let the submarine go, like you just sheerly proving to him that you're a telepath could have been enough. You didn't need to go deep in there. And when you're telling him to move the, the satellite, the satellite like mm-hmm. you don't need to go. He didn't ask you to go in there and bring <laughs> up his birthday with his mother. Like he didn't ask you for that. You just went in there and you took that. So it's like, she carries around the hatred for all of the things that he's done and then sees it immediately in anything that he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Even, even if there happens to be a story where Xavier's maybe he should have done it, but I'd say no. doing an okay job. And, you know, he's helping to bring the team together and train them. No, he did these other things. <laughs> I've been stewing on them for the last three weeks. And I hate that man. Have a vendetta again. <laughs> One of the things that really annoyed me too is his interactions with Mystique in this movie. And just like, especially the, like the way he gets so freaked out whenever she turns up blue and it's just, and his whole thing, no, you should hide. You should be ashamed of who you really are. It's just. Yeah. It's the idea of of passing as a, as a human, right. And and his almost wanting her to feel shame for wanting to be herself. And I feel like that is really articulated well in the difference between Xavier and Magneto and Uh how he's encouraging her. No, like you are distracted by trying to maintain this exterior appearance. You should just be who you are. That's where your strength comes from. Well, y'all, if people were comfortable being themselves, then they wouldn't need Charles. Yeah. So he needs them to be uncomfortable being themselves. So they need him. 
You <laughs> can puppet them around. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what did you guys think of Sebastian Shaw and the Hellfire Club in this movie? We have a lot of feelings about Sebastian Shaw in this movie. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings. So, okay. Sebastian Shaw is one of my favorite love to hate characters. And I also love Kevin Bacon. Like I, I, I am a dancer. So like Footloose in my mind, when I see Kevin Bacon, I see Footloose. And I think that the character of Shaw was written well. And I think that there are moments when he has the right kind of presence, but I think overall Kevin Bacon has too much charm in a way that you actually like him to be Sebastian Shaw because Sebastian Shaw should feel like he's trying to be charming, but he doesn't quite get there. You still have an uncomfortable feeling about you, about him whenever he's speaking to you. And I felt like Kevin Bacon was a little too, like too likable Mm -hmm. to be Shaw. And I feel like I've allowed that to influence my read on Shaw because before having that conversation, I, I really liked the casting of Kevin Bacon as Shaw. And I really like the performance, especially, uh-huh. and I, I get, I get the charming because there are times when I'm like, man, I'm, I'm about to sign up for this brotherhood. You know, I'm about to join the evil mutants. Uh, but he just has such a calm anger about him in so many of the scenes that, and, and I, I really do like, and it, it's nothing to do with the, the comic story, but I like what they did with, his influence on Magneto at various stages throughout mm. his life. Mm. And to have this driving force put within him by, what was his name initially? Oh, uh, Schmidt. Yeah, Schmidt. Schmidt Johann, How could you forget uh, it? Right. Uh, and, then, and then to become the Shaw that then shows him, no, like we are superior. We are, we should be this way. It kind of really influences Magneto's whole drive, which... I, I like, but I don't like at the same time because I'm like, no, Magneto's his own man and he mm-hmm. has his own feelings mm-hmm. for his own reasons. But I like what they did with Shaw. Uh, to your, your question about the Hellfire Club, I felt like there was some missed opportunity to really root that into more of what the Hellfire Club was. Mm-hmm. It, it was really just surface level. You know, hey, we throw fancy parties and we have cool mansions and yachts there could have been a lot more to the the power and influence that the hellfire club in the comics controls and also i mean if you if you knew you wanted to go for the dark phoenix at some point you could have started to build that into the uh-huh. lore of the hellfire club you could have started to to lay some seat even if it's just a firebird over the the desk you know uh-huh. something something uh-huh. that i i just it was surface level. It was good at the surface level. It definitely felt like the Hellfire Club, but I felt like there were more things that they could have done with it. I also want to say that it's not Kevin Bacon's fault. <laughs> okay, like I don't think Kevin Bacon did a bad job. I just think he is inherently more likable. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> I'm picking up Kevin on a lot Bacon, of- I still love you. <laughs> I'm picking up on a lot of what you guys are saying. Uh, I-, I also love Kevin Bacon's performance in this. Um, my biggest thing is that as much as I love his performance, this is not Sebastian Shaw. Like when I think of right. Sebastian Shaw, I think of the ultimate opportunist, right? He's the guy who builds Sentinels, even though he's a mutant himself, because it makes him money. And turning him into this kind of proto-Magneto slash mixed in with the Dash of Apocalypse 
as far as like his plan goes, it just feels really weird to me. And, and going to what you said, Justin, about his whole, um, the influence on Magneto, I also like it better that it's, Magneto came to these ideas on his own. He didn't need yeah. them to be taught to him by by some, some other guy, even to the point where he ripped off his helmet. And the Hellfire oh, Club- that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time I saw this movie, I was watching it with a buddy of mine. And every time, Magneto uh, Shaw wore the helmet. My friend just kept screaming, "That is not your hat, sir." <laughs> well, I actually feel too like in the movie when you look at it and you look at the way the helmet looks on Shaw versus how the helmet looks on Magneto. Like the costume department clearly made it to fit mm-hmm. Magneto, and then they were like, "Okay, you wear this for a little while, and everyone will feel like it doesn't quite work for you." And then once Magneto puts it on, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. get that red paint all over it. Mm-hmm. But we're good. But the point that you're saying, right, about Shaw being an opportunist, I feel like the only time that they really exploit that is in the beginning when he's literally working for the Nazis, right? Like he's working with Nazis, which is horrific, but he is doing it because he's gaining something out of it. Well, and then there's the the kind of underlying plot of him influencing the nuclear war to, Mm, yeah. and I don't know where this idea was like, yeah, the nuclear explosions created mutants so we should blow up everything and then we'll be stronger i don't know shaw you should maybe fact check your your sources on that one yeah, but that actually works. but he, he's play, like he is a driving factor on the, the cuban mm. missile crisis which yeah is a great great cool like connector yeah. to history and i i do feel like he's doing things that are opportunistic but at the same time he just it isn't just grimy enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like the connections to the um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the, I love it when superhero movies and stories can weave in actual history and in a way that actually makes sense. I love it when they do that kind of stuff. Um, like with, uh, I just, uh, I, the last episode I did was uh, on um, Winter Soldier and how they weaved in Operation Paperclip into Hydra. And that, that was a, that was another brilliant use of that. And, and when I'm, but, and the, the whole, I think they took the children of the Adam thing a little too literally because there's this idea is like, you know, I guess the whole idea is that mutants are immune to radiation in this, which, but even still, if you're going to have a, a global nuclear war, you're going right. to destroy everything else. So even if you're yeah. immune to radiation, you're not immune to explosions. Right, <laughs> right. Or, or the lack of food created yeah. by all of this nuclear war. Yes. Like, uh, I don't think you can teleport far enough to find mm-hmm. a, a grocery store that's unaffected. Azazel, sorry. Uh, what about the uh, the other characters in the in the first class? Um, what's probably the biggest ones are Mystique and Beast. Uh, what were some of your thoughts about those guys? Well, I I could appreciate that now looking at it from a new lens like i could appreciate the transition of beast from a non-blue man to a blue man because he starts out non-blue in the comics but he's also very different than he is physically appearing as a non-blue man if that makes sense he's not quite that skinny um but i don't know i've never really been like a fan of beast i don't really care um, so that's my take. <laughs> I feel like of the characters cast, those are probably the two that I'm like, okay, uh, I don't know if this really works. 
but I do like what they do with the plot of those two characters mm-hmm. and how that really underscores the subplot of acceptance of yourself and, and really drives Beast to go even further and, and mutate himself. And I, I do like the, the use of Mystique's genes uh-huh. as this wellspring of potential for genetic material that they then follow up in uh, on Days of Future Past and how that then becomes you know, the, the core for the, the Nimrod-esque sentinels of the future, which I, I, there are parts of it that I really appreciate because of that subplot, but meh, you I know. really don't like their sexual tension. Yeah, that didn't. Uh, I'm not for that. I feel like that was only just because, hey, you're both kind of un- unaccepted mm-hmm. by yeah, yeah. society in your mutant form. So love, maybe. And it's kind of funny because apparently they, those two actors started dating th- through this movie, which is so weird to me because they don't seem to have any chemistry together. No. Yeah. I mean, it's like when, because when I heard like Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone started dating with Amazing Spider-Man, that makes sense. They have tons right. of chemistry. Um, but this one, like, I mean, Fastbender probably has chemistry with everybody. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't want to sleep with Fastbender. I don't know. Yeah. Like, honestly, if I was on the movie, I'd, I'd probably have issues too. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody loves him. Yeah. Who doesn't? Um, but I felt there was so much more chemistry between her and Fastbender than there was with her and Hold. And her, um, Jennifer Lawrence's mystique, I'm okay with her in this movie. I think the big problem came in is that she did Hunger Games after this and that blew up and then they decided, oh, she's our new Wolverine now. Yeah. And and the whole arc her character goes on does makes less sense after this movie because this movie ends with her saying like, mutant and proud, I'm going to be myself. And then she's still Jennifer Lawrence in the other movies. Right. I think for me, that specific line, it's the way the, the way she delivers it. Like, I love Jennifer Lawrence, but I didn't, I don't, not a big fan of I feel I feel as though it may have been the writing that makes her very timid, mm-hmm. but I don't like it. I don't really have an eloquent way of saying that. Um, like when she says mutant and proud at the end, I it literally has to do with like the cadence of how she says it. Mm-hmm. That the word proud does not come across genuine to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same way. Um and uh, her, I, I love Jennifer Lawrence as well, but I do not love her in this role. And I think you're right. Probably part of it is the writing. Part of it is this attempt to try to make her like the new central tentpole of the franchise. Mm. Yeah. And especially as it goes forward, like you were saying, it, it flip-flops, right? Mm. So she's she's good in the first one and then she turns bad. And then, all right, now in Days of Future Past, she's bad. And then she kind of comes back to good. And it's like, you, you could have just kept her bad. You uh-huh. could have just doubled down on that and have her be the new leader of the Brotherhood. And there are comics that support that. So let's yeah. just do that then. Yeah. yeah. And Nicholas Holt, like, I despise Nicholas Holt. as I love Beast. I lo- Not so much in the more current stuff, but, but <laughs> traditionally I love the character. And like Kelsey Grammer, and I thought, was the best thing about The Last Stand. Even though I don't really like the rest of that movie, I love Kelsey Grammer in that movie. I think he perfectly captures what Beast is. The humor, the intellect, the wit, all of that. He's got Nicholas Holt is just this boring milksop of a guy. And he just has no charisma, 
he's in, they, it's like they looked at him and they're like, oh, Beast is intelligent. He's a science guy. He's a nerd. Let's make him this, the stereotypical shy, nerdy guy then. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with what you're saying. The only thing that I do like about is I, I like his blue. You know, I like when he turns blue mm-hmm. and uh, really, I feel like that looks and feels like Beast. Because uh, it also then gives him the, the physicality that he was lacking previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what about some of the other first-class characters? One of the biggest things I thought with this movie is that because they didn't know if they were going to be doing a reboot or a, a prequel, that they, they it seemed to be like, let's throw let's have all the x-men characters in a hat and let's just pick out random ones and see who yes they they are they are very random in terms of where they're coming from and and who they are i i like most of the characters honestly i i feel like they really doubled down to show you that alex is not scott you know Mm -hmm. he's the bad boy that you meet in prison for the first time that has problems with everybody and honestly Havoc has so much trauma, like all the time. This poor man, he just always has trauma. And that is that is also true in this movie. So uh, I called the guy that played Banshee. I was like, he looks like a Weasley brother from oh, yeah, Harry Potter. Said, which yeah. Weasley? I know Landry Jones. Yeah. And I think he did a great job. I think it's an interesting take on the character of Banshee because in the comics, he's more of a contemporary of mm-hmm. Xavier and to, to kind of de-age him down and put him in these, as a, as a new student is an interesting choice, but I liked his addition. Uh, Angel was really out of left field in terms mm-hmm. of like where she's coming from in the comics. And yeah, I, I didn't mind her, her, her power is always kind of weirded me out in the comics. It it kind of weirded me out about Angel when I was, and it didn't jump out into me until I was doing this reread of the Morrison stuff. But in the in the comics, like the whole point of her, she's kind of like the anti Kitty Pride, right? She's like from this, you know, she comes from like this, you know, poor background. She's um, she's got this like abrasive personality. She's she's not the prettiest mutant. She's you know, um, but in this, they they took all that and they kind of chucked it away and they literally turned her into a pixie dream girl. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting yeah and i also just i have a thing about darwin yeah and like uh-huh. why does everybody in my experience at least say hey look at this it's darwin he's cool he has powers bye you're gone we don't care about you anymore <laughs> yeah. like i feel like he always gets like just one moment and then no one cares or he's dead yeah and i feel bad for him because i think he has a cool power set and he's a cool character and, and that is probably, in addition to the mystique relationship with Xavier, is probably one of the things that really sticks out to me as a what? You have you literally have the character that adapts to survive and he dies. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you know tropes of, of films and killing off the Black character aside, that doesn't make sense for this character and this power set. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just... That scene, and I'm like, ah, yeah. Come on. I, I, it's weird too. What there are only two black characters in this group of mutants, and one of them goes evil, and the other one is killed. I'm just like, you guys could do a little bit better with that. Yeah. Just a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, no, but I did like I did like Darwin for what little we get of him in this movie. And it's funny the uh, the actor who played him, uh, Edie Gathigi, he had, he had recently uh, done an interview and he had said he had talked about how much he felt like that was a missed opportunity for them to have killed off Darwin. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just too soon. And yeah. and I really like as a whole the group and in those team bonding scenes and just their chemistry as a group. Mm-hmm. I feel like really sells some of the heart of of their shared experience of not being accepted. You know, they're, uh-huh. they're kind of like laughed at as the freaks from even the agents of the facility. Mm-hmm. And even as Havoc's demonstrating his power and they're all like doing the, the lean forward, lean uh-huh. back, you know, they just, they feel like they play off each other well and they come up with their code names. That, that was just a fun segment of yeah. the film. But, yeah. it, but it really confused me the way that like they put Mystique in that group uh-huh. and for the you know beginning of the movie she's her and charles and magneto are sort of like we're all the same age we're going through this thing together and then when they form the group they're like go sit at the kids table we're the adults uh-huh. and then she turns into more of like a weak sad little child and i just don't like like i don't understand that dynamic why did she get shoved to the side like that because you were just trying to show Charles and Xavier as the leaders but like you made in my opinion they made it seem as though all of those other mutants were much younger than the two of them yeah and then they put Mystique in that group and then she starts to act more juvenile and I don't I don't know that didn't sit right with me and I think some of that might be just because of how serious Charles is and how their relationship <laughs> uh-huh. probably was repressed in even the way that he represses her mutanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now she's just able to be be a person with these people that accept her for who she is. That's true. And she then she's kind of relaxed. Let loose, yeah. Yeah. I did, I love the, the, training, the training stuff. And then it, like this movie, it feels like I wanted two movies out of this one i wanted magneto nazi hunter as its own separate movie and i wanted just a movie about them training to be x-men like because i love the sequences of them at the when they first get to the mansion yeah i do too uh except and do you want to oh yeah why does charles not have to train (laughs) yeah (laughs) why is why is he suddenly capable of training all these people who he's never met. I, I almost was like really mad that he like never wore a gray tracksuit, but he does one time when he's running with, with Hank, mm. but that's it. And I'm just like, well, you don't have to train at all. There's that, there's, it's funny because he does say that one scene before they go, he's like, we'll have to train all of us. And then he, he's the only one who doesn't. Not me though. You're right. He doesn't do shit. <laughs> yeah. We're at my house, my rules. I'm Xavier. I can read all your minds and tell you, it's no, fine. I trained, I trained. I've been training trained by in my mind. Well, yeah. I've been training by, by training you, you know, by working with each of you, I'm training my mind to manipulate you to follow my dream. And like one thing I noticed so much, right. Is that in the very beginning of the movie, it seems like Charles and Mystique have a much better hand when they're younger, have a much better handle on their powers than Eric. Yeah. And then Eric goes through his life of having to use his powers to survive. So then you see him and he's, you know, he seems to have, he's trying to pull the submarine at the beginning and all that stuff. He seems to be more powerful. And Charles hasn't really been doing much with his gift other than party tricks. Uh-huh. And, but then we get to this place and now Charles is, pushing magneto to like level up but he doesn't have to level up and i just don't understand that like i really liked that play of 
how, you know, this idea of like fighting to survive or the fact that Shaw brings out that like pain and anger is what we're going to get to amplify your power. And I did appreciate the contrast of Charles saying like, it's that balance between those two things like pain, anger, and joy or happiness. Like that's where the sweet spot is. But just the idea that he hasn't really been honing his powers, his life, because he didn't, he didn't need to. Mm -hmm. So why doesn't he do it now? Yeah. Um, another thing I really liked too was the um, the the recruiting scene, especially the cameo we got there. Like that, that was yes. I think my my two favorite moments of this movie are the the scene in the bar and and then when we when they go into the, and the during the recruitment when it's another bar scene. <laughs> the other bar, yeah. <laughs> I like the bar scenes. I love, I love the bar scenes. Um, but they they walk in and you know it's just there's there's Hugh Jackman just sitting there with his cigar and and they're they they get they just introduce themselves and right away just like go fuck yourselves. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I love when they bring that back. Mm-hmm. In Days of Future in Days Past. Days of Future Past, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like that was a well executed cameo. If you only have them for a day mm-hmm. and you want to really uh connect with the fans of the previous trilogy that's how you do it that yeah. was just a, and it was textbook wolverine too yeah yeah when i had heard about that cameo that hugh jackman was doing a cameo i thought oh, come on you guys can get away from hugh jackman for one movie but when i actually saw it i'm just like okay no you that's good that's good excellent work yeah the cameo when he when they did when they tried to do another cameo in apocalypse that felt a lot more forced yeah that was the the weapon x one yeah 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 and uh, so alicia you being a, a fan of emma frost mm-hmm. what did you think of january jones in this movie i mean she looks like emma um i just she there is like a softness about her portrayal that i don't think is hitting the mark i think there are a couple moments where she has like Emma Flair, um, one being like when she cuts a hole in the in the yeah. glass, and another one is like a little bit when she's in the in the room and she's like manipulating, manipulating the general. I think mm-hmm. he is like she's making him think things are happening, and she's just sort of sitting there and she's like pathetic, like that kind of thing. But I think there's just a softness about mm-hmm. her confidence that isn't the right kind of con- like. She eludes a confidence that is of a beautiful person and not a confidence that is of a strong person. Uh And I think that Emma has a little more, a little more more salt and a little, she's just a little harder. Uh Um, I didn't think it was horrible. Like I liked it, but I just, I didn't feel like she was given enough authority like she uh-huh. felt very much of a side yeah. character she had moments where like you know the fact that Shaw let her go and do that thing to be his representative when he was going to go off and steal all the baby mutants but I just it, it felt like she was more his secretary or yeah. his yeah his assistant <clears throat> versus an equal like she is in the comics yeah I mean and- I hate I hate the scene when he says, you know, this needs ice. Like, go fetch me oh some ice. Oh my God, no, I will throw that glass and, in your face. Yeah, like Emma Frost, she would have taken the glass and she would have just smashed it in his face. Like that. Right. But see, in that moment, like I could see Shaw saying that to Emma. Right. Yeah. But I would see Emma reacting differently. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. Shaw's, like, Shaw's, yeah, Shaw's saying that made perfect sense for his character, but Emma just timidly accepting it and then going up and cutting the, that, no, no, that's not Emma. Yeah, like, that is, that's what I'm talking about. Like, they just made her like, okay, I'm Emma. Right, mm-hmm. they but took like, away her, they took away her confidence in her agency as yeah. the powerful telepath that she is, especially with access to her diamond form at that time. Yeah. It's so weird because, They've got, they've now, they've now tried to do Emma two times in these movies. They first did in, in X-Men Origins and were there. She had that confidence, but she had none of like the, like the high class reading type of stuff, like the, the haughtiness. Here they have the haughtiness, but none of the confidence. Yeah. 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 I think, I think it was an okay casting. It definitely would not be at the top. I, for a movie that really nails a lot of the other casting with Magneto, mm-hmm. with Xavier, uh, even even at times with Shaw, and I feel like hers was okay. You know, mm-hmm. she she does an okay job as Emma, but yeah. doesn't really do the character a lot of justice. And and I don't know again if that is the writing. I think that's a it's a mixture of the writing, but also the performance and the confidence of the character. It just like feels like she's whispering. She's like mm-hmm. the whisper version of Emma. Right. Yeah. It feels like, like standard. Yeah. Ground. I feel like they, the producers are, were watching this and they thought like, cause they had originally cast um, Alice Eve uh, who was in um, Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, and, um, and I think she would have done a much better job based on, that's the only thing I've ever seen her in, but based on that little performance I saw her in Into Darkness, I feel like she would have done a better job. I feel like they just kind of like, they thought, well, you know, January Jones plays a blonde woman on Mad Men. That's set in the 60s. Let's put her in this movie. Uh, I just looked up Alice Eve because I didn't know who that was. And I, she is Emma Frost. She she already, like, just looking at pictures of her. Just her facial expressions are fantastic. This would have been a much better That was a missed opportunity, friends. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently there was, like, some scheduling conflict or or something and she had to drop out her. Um, uh, But it's so weird that the best Emma Frost that we've gotten in live action is from the very terrible Generation X TV movie. <laughs> I haven't seen that. It's, uh, and it's also, I think, an argument could be made for the best Banshee as well. Because I think he was, his accent was, his terrible accent notwithstanding. I mean, he was, right. he, in, he embodied everything about Banshee in that movie. Yeah. 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 What about the um, the other side of the coin? So we talked about we talked about the first class, but what about the the rest of? I keep on calling them the Brotherhood because they don't really have a team. They're the Hellfire mm-hmm. Club. Right, they're the Hellfire yeah. Club, I guess. Yeah. Azazel uh, was good. I thought Azazel was good, it was, and I and I, I mean, it's hard to do worse with Azazel than they did in the comics. So anything they do with Azazel that is different from what Chuck Austin did is an improvement. Yeah. And I think we don't, him, we don't talk about the Draco. We don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. grant, granted, he doesn't say much right he just appears and makes a terrifying face and stabs you with his tail um but i and, i liked it and they really strengthened his power in mm. terms of the distance that he can teleport and how i mean that is a little bit more true to him in comparison to nightcrawler and then there's some opportunity of like yeah mystique and azazel went off mm-hmm. and who knows what they did but they made yeah. baby nightcrawler right yeah i thought i thought he was really well done um I, I, the the choice of making him Russian, I thought was a pretty cool one. And I think a character like Azazel, like you look at that kind of description, him being part of the Hellfire Club makes so much more sense than 
the weird like i'm this other dimensional devil or something or who needs my my children to open a portal in my world even though i can easily teleport into the other world whenever i can yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um but riptide it just kind of felt like it it was another example of just like oh here's this box of character names let's pick one out yeah, it, I feel like Riptide was there more for his power than for yeah. his character. They were like, we need someone who can like do stuff with the water. Yeah, yeah and yeah. attack from a distance because we have no distance attackers other than Azazel has to get an area. So let's let's vary up their power sets. Yeah. It also, yeah, it also felt kind of weird because aside from Emma, none of the Hellfire Club had appeared in any of the movies. So you could have used those those characters. Right. Yeah. So, so I thought that was kind of a weird choice then when I'm like, you guys don't have to go. And But overall, I think the Hellfire Club, it felt too much, much like Shaw was like a proto-Magneto. It felt too much like the brother, the, and I think, um, Justin, you kind of slipped on this when you had mentioned earlier that, you know, Kevin Bacon's performance made you want to join the Brotherhood. I'm like, yeah, right. that's kind of what the Hellfire Club is in this movie. Right, because yeah. they're not, the Hellfire Club of the comics, they're, kind of equals at least mm. at least the kings and and, and then queens. the queens right so they're at these p- power positions whereas this just felt like shaw and his band yeah they didn't they didn't bring it was like he was the president of the hellfire club and here are some members that are on for the ride right yeah right in that like when emma goes to have that meeting it should just be like, I am the representative of the Hellfire Club here at this moment, not I am here on Shaw's behalf. Right. Yeah. They don't even call her the White Queen at any time, I don't think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that felt like a missed opportunity, especially because in the beginning, you get hints of that, like with, you know, the the generals going to the, the Hellfire Club and meeting and everything like that and all the wheeling dealing. That stuff was great. And then they got away from that and put it into Brotherhood territory. Yeah, and I thought that was a really cool visually modernization of the Hellfire Club itself mm-hmm. and, and how this was this kind of speakeasy. Uh, you, you did call out when we were watching the elaborateness of Moira's lingerie. Yeah, just like, what a, is she wearing that underneath her clothes? CIA for? stakeout. It's like, yeah, you never know what's going to happen. Unless, like, she knew, oh, we're going to the Hellfire Club, so I need to be wearing something sexy, sexy under here just in mm. case I need to go undercover. Like, I'll give her maybe that. But nobody just wears that <laughs> underneath their clothes. And also like to work. I mean <laughs> not and I'm not saying like all the other girls were like done up. Like mm-hmm. they had elaborate makeup and hair. And she was like, Oh, I'm wearing a sexy outfit. So it doesn't matter that I just look normal up top. Mm-hmm. Like clearly she would stick out. Yeah, yeah. Um but, well that's a that's a good transition. What do you think of Rose Burns as Moira? I liked it well enough. I, I think that I like the elements of Moira that she brings. I think they really changed the character of Moira mm-hmm. in, in who she is, especially if we're talking pre-Hickman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as we've known Moira, there's no sense of geneticist. You know, there's no sense of a scientist. Uh, she's a CIA agent. And mm-hmm. I think that that gives credence to her intelligence and I feel like Rose really plays that well. And, and the, the seriousness of the situation and as she's approaching Xavier. So I, I like most of it. I just feel it, it, and it's a good use of her character in this connection point with Xavier 
and and to the government funding that historically there is some connection to Xavier and government informing the X-Men. So I feel mm-hmm. like that was nice enough to. Sorry, I just had a moment where I realized I kind of lost it for a second when Charles, they're in that meeting and Charles just flat out tells them he's a mutant. Yeah. I was like, this is because we literally were just talking about how uh, Charles always seems to, when we were doing the trial of Magneto, that Charles always seems to not be able to reveal himself, but everyone knows everyone else is a mutant, but not Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a tangent. Sorry, <laughs> Moira. Um, I don't really know a lot about the character of Moira outside of Hickman and the mm-hmm. Krakoan age. Um, but I do remember when she first came up, you were like, look at her. She's, she's got a, she's a badass with a machine gun. And I did feel like she did have those moments, you know, like she takes on a few fights and holds her own for the most part. And she's very, she very much has like a go-getter, like I'm going to do this attitude. So I appreciated that about her character, but I don't really know how she compares to comic Moira Mm -hmm. enough to. Yeah, I just keep coming back. It, it's it's so strange because we do see her in, in the last stand as well. And suddenly over the course of, you know, what, like 30 or 40 years or whatever it is, she became a geneticist and gained a Scottish accent. Yep. <laughs> Crazy. How um, did this happen? So, yeah, it, it is. It's just it's and that's another one of those continuity errors that just kind of like sticks at me in this movie when it's, mm-hmm. it's just like I'm like. You had three, you had four movies to watch before you wrote this movie. It wasn't that much homework. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, one of the things I did love about this too uh, was the costumes. I thought this, I thought this was a brilliant way to meld like the, the comic book costumes and make them look realistic. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I wrote that down. I was like, I really love the way that they're pulling from you know the comic images but making Mm -hmm. these suits their own thing yeah it was and it struck a balance not only between you know you have the black leather of the originals you have the the tactical uniforms of this set but also some individuality Mm -hmm. and that's really a big part about Mm -hmm. the x-men is that they don't have oftentimes they don't have a unifying aesthetic they'd have their own uniforms but this had just enough of a unification but Alex has his little satellite dish. Banshee mm-hmm. has his his wings, mm-hmm. and that that just felt really good, almost as good as what uh, that that was probably my favorite moment of the costumes in the X Men franchise, except for that tease at the end of I think it's oh the apocalypse oh apocalypse yeah 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 where they're all wearing like pretty comic accurate looking uniforms and they're about to enter a danger room sequence and that never gets followed up on ever again. Yeah. Yeah. Angry about that. Like, why would you tease me with that and not do anything with it? I, we did a, I did a dark Phoenix episode um, a few episodes back and that was one of the things. And like, I wasn't completely sold on those. I felt those comics, the end of apocalypse. I felt like they were, I had some issues with them. I felt they looked a little bit, they didn't quite, they didn't look streamlined enough but I like the idea behind it. And then the yeah. idea, and then just going from that to black unitards with the yellow X on the front just felt like such a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that. But yeah, I these ones. visually see it. 
But yeah, these costumes, I think, were the, the best that we've seen in the movies so far. I thought they, that was like the perfect melding of, of those two. Yeah. 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 Although it did throw me a little bit to see Charles and Magneto in them. Mm. I was like, ah, Magneto in blue and yellow. <laughs> it's not for me. Um, I also loved the helmet in this, even though it looks ridiculous on Kevin Bacon for most of the movie, as soon as Fassbender puts it on, it's perfect. And it's, it's so perfect. And it, it shapes the way it like shapes his face. Mm -hmm. You see future Magneto. Like right. you see the yeah. connection between the two of them. It's so beautiful. It's kind of disappointing because this is the best helmet we've seen. It's like comics accurate, perfect. And they never use this helmet again. I don't know why, because I, it's, it, it like you said it, it does it fits his face perfectly it looks big enough my biggest problem with the one that ian mckellen always wore is it looks like it's crushing his skull <laughs> that looks uncomfortable yeah yeah and i also love magneto's look at the end here when he's painted it red and purple and he's wearing the cape and everything and he's even added the little little thing on yes. top of it horns, yes. yeah i feel like that and i was thinking this as we were watching it so that moment there as much as I love Days of Future Past, I wish that they had done a film in between mm -hmm. because I feel like you really set up something else and that would have, you know, Days of Future Past is one of my favorites. It's probably easily my favorite of the more recent mm -hmm. uh, X-Men movies. And I feel like missed opportunity to explore a little bit more of the dichotomy between Xavier's side and Magneto's side like yeah show me yeah. their teams going up or show me something else in that mm -hmm. time because you you hit it strong Enough. with this uh -huh. reboot and then immediately you're like oh but it's tying into this thing and it's a great movie but you could have spaced that out and then it's like where do you go from there you've gotten really good really really good mm -hmm. and this is gonna trying to capture that magic ever since yeah. and then there's Logan and Logan's great there's and Logan. the Deadpool yeah. movies and they're great yeah yeah and when you were saying um, about your favorite X-Men movies, like I was just, that just kept running through my head. I'm like, are you counting Logan and the Deadpool movies in that too? No, that wasn't yeah. when I said that. <laughs> and I'd still, Days of Future Past is still, and we, we were guessing on another podcast talking about movies. And I was like, no, Days of Future Past is probably my favorite above Logan. And the guy was like, what? Are you serious? And eh, it's just, it's more of an X-Men movie. It and is, yeah. it's, it's got yeah. so much of the comic connection seeped into it but enough that it makes it work for where the franchise was at uh -huh. that the fact that they're able to pull that off i that i just loved it i love i like days of future past my whole thing with that is it, it feels like a movie that was made in a world before avengers came out mm -hmm. and, and it feels like it's still kind of i feel like in a post avengers world we should have gotten a little bit more leaning into the superhero side of things. Hmm. I is, agree. Is my biggest thing about that movie, but I do love it for the most part. And I like the road cut, even though there are some story problems it creates, but I do love the, I do love that we got to see more of the future stuff. I, that's one of the things, if I have one to complain about Days of Future Past, it's that I wanted to see more of what the world is like in the future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, Guys, you have any uh, anything final thoughts you want to say about uh, first class? Hold on, let me consult my notes. <laughs> I think we talked about everything that I found very important. 
Yeah, it was really just that. And I'm glad I got to say it, it was I, I really thought that they could have nailed another movie in between mm-hmm. First Class and Days of Future Past because like, even don't even have it deal with Magneto, you know, have no, have it deal with Magneto. have have Juggernaut, have Mr. Sinister, have Sauron, do, mm-hmm. do anything else, knowing that, you know, it's it's change up the team a little bit, add another character or two. I, I just feel like that was a missed opportunity, especially, and I harped on this when we talked about Days of Future Past, the comic. The comic is set, the future version of the comic is set the year before the movie actually came out. So oh, you've okay. missed that opportunity mm-hmm. to connect it in the year that it actually came out, which I feel like, you know, I didn't want to rush that. But if you're already going to miss that opportunity, push it out a little bit further. Miss it a little Give more. me another movie in between that's going to be really great. And then that's the trilogy. That's the... And then do whatever the hell else you want. And yeah. now that you've said it a couple of times, I really would like to see Magneto Nazi Hunter yeah. as a movie. Yeah. And just as like a little aside, I have this fan fiction in my head of Magneto and, and Hydra. And when we were watching this, I was like, it's right there, people. Shaw is working with the Nazis. He has Magneto. He's clearly experimenting on this child. Hydra should be involved. And then Magneto can go back and hunt all the Hydra people down. It would be fantastic. Let's do it. I would love to see that. Yeah. Working. And that, that'd be a good way to work him into the, into the MCU then. Um, yeah. Exactly. I, most, mostly I'm, I'm, I'm a proponent of, rebooting the x-men completely in the mcu but if you're going to bring back anyone you know you got to bring back ryan reynolds and i think fast is the other one i'd make the argument yes for. yes yeah i i agree with i think the the easiest thing to do is just a clean break mm-hmm. but but just give me michael fassbender <laughs> well <laughs> i don't know I if mean, that works crossover from one bond universe into the other so my, why can't michael fassbender i don't care if it doesn't make sense i just want it yeah. Nothing okay. else made sense. So why 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 start making sense now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff in these movies that just when you've watched these movies as many times as I have, there those little continuity errors get more and more obvious every time. Yeah, and it was it was early on into the pandemic that we watched the entirety of mm-hmm. the every X-Men movie in mm-hmm. chronological or in release order and and really Doing that in a condensed amount of time points out those yeah. things like, hey, yeah. I feel like I could have made a better X-Men movie at various times <laughs> just watching the films and knowing the comics. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, you could have put a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the biggest failing of these movies is that the you had people who were calling the shots that weren't necessarily fans of the X-Men beforehand. Um, right. Whereas with the MCU, you've got Kevin Feige, who is clearly a diehard Marvel fan, and he mm-hmm. and that's driving everything behind those movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think on X Men One, they didn't allow comics on set. That that was some. Oh, really? Was, I didn't know that. Straight up foolish. Right, where they they didn't want any comics on set at all. That they really wanted to to dive into just modernizing it and taking a different turn. Uh, that the fact that Hugh Jackman was reading his own stuff hidden from everything else just so he could get a little bit more of the characterization of Logan. Well, yeah, I mean, the bub line he says in the first movie, he had to add live that because that wasn't in the script at all. Right, right. And then and then after the success of the first movie, it was like, oh, okay, maybe we should go back to the source mm-hmm. material and kind of half adapt God Loves, Man Kills. Yeah, yeah. 
that, that's, I think that's, yeah, lots of missed opportunities with this franchise, which I'm hoping now we can, we can course correct and we can get some really interesting stuff. I trust in Feige. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's yet to steer me wrong. Um, yeah. Iron Man three, notwithstanding, that's the only one. I. <laughs> <laughs> but he, but he redeemed himself when we got Shang-Chi. So I'm good with that now. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So yeah. good. Don't get an attention, Alicia. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, you want to promote your promote yourself one last time before we close up? Oh, we would love to. Thank you so much. Uh, you can find us all over the internet and wherever you get your podcasts at the X Wife Podcast. That's T H E X W I F E Podcast, as in X Men, not former wife. Yeah. We do comic episodes about the new comics every week, and then. Occasionally, we dip back into some classic episodes uh, about older stories, like we just did the Trial of Magneto to tie into the current storyline called Trial of Magneto, but also recently had done the, the Demon Bear Saga, which is the source material for the New Mutants movie, and some other fan favorites throughout the years. Nice. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming on. It was uh, it was great getting to meet you. It was great having you talking with you about the about these movies. Um, as for us, uh, superherocinephiles.com, Super Cinema Pod is our Twitter and Instagram. And we've got the Facebook group, Superhero Cinephiles. Just search for that. And um, and yeah, that does it for us. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You have been listening to the Superhero Cinephiles podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Super Cinema Pod. Join our Facebook group by searching for Superhero Cinephiles, where you can interact with us and other superhero fans. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a regular supporter at Patreon or make a one-time donation through PayPal, both of which can be found at our website, SuperheroCinephiles.com. If you buy or rent any movies through the Amazon links at our site, it helps support the show. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, good night, good evening, God bless.